first of all, the global economy is set to weaken. We expect advanced economies to be the weakest since the 1980s outside of the global financial crisis and the COVID crisis. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might face them. This week, a look at the global economy. The World Economic Forum has just published its regular Chief Economist Outlook, which reflects the views of chief economists around the world, and most of them see the global economy slowing. This economist tells us why that's maybe not such a bad thing. Well, I wouldn't say it's pessimistic. Actually, growth slowing down is part of the solution of getting inflation under control. So I really do hope growth is going to slow down, because if it's not going to slow down, then we have a bigger problem on the inflation front. But haven't we succeeded in taming runaway inflation? Perhaps, but this economist is cautious. Maybe the biggest risk out there is complacency, that we declare too early victory over inflation. And looking ahead, what are the big trends that chief economists expect to shape the global economy in the medium to long term? We're looking at climate change. Climate change still the number one long-term economic risk. We're looking at globalization, supply chain changes. Globalization has peaked. Deglobalization is happening, but you don't see it yet in the numbers. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts or visit wef.ch slash podcast where you'll also find Meet the Leader, Agenda Dialogues and the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. I'm Robin Palmer at the World Economic Forum and with this look at the Chief Economist Outlook, we live in a world of high risk, higher uncertainty. This is Radio Davos. This episode of Radio Davos comes to you on day one of the annual Sustainable Development Impact Meetings, which take place all this week from the 18th to the 22nd of September 2023 at the World Economic Forum in New York. Leaders from politics, business and civil society are meeting to discuss ways to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the 17 goals designed to make a better world by 2030. You can follow the action on the website wef.ch slash sdim23 and across social media using the hashtag SDIM23. One of several key reports published for the Sustainable Development Impact Meetings is the Chief Economist Outlook, and that's the subject of this episode. The report, which is something the forum does every few months, is based on the views of senior economists around the world. This edition shows a glass half full and half empty, with concerns of widespread economic recession easing since the last report in May, but continued economic uncertainty and geopolitical tensions. A couple of headlines from the report. Most economists, 61% of those questions, expect the global economy to weaken in the coming year. But an even bigger majority, 86%, are optimistic that inflation will ease. You can find the whole report on our website, links in the show notes. And joining me now to share his views on the global economy is the chief economist at insurer Swiss Re, one of the world's largest reinsurance companies, Jerome Hegeli. Thanks for joining us. Tell us, Jerome, before we start, for anyone who doesn't know, what is a chief economist at a company like yours? What do you do? Well, I look at the macroeconomic developments across the globe. I have a global team. I do the forecast for Swiss Re, the in-house forecast on the macro front as well as on the insurance front. Uh, that's number number one, including with it, uh, I also do economic scenarios, not just looking at the baseline scenario, but also alternative scenarios. And on top of that, uh, I do a lot of uh, thought leadership uh, reports. You might know the Sigma uh, flagship report of uh, Swiss Re, which has been running now since 56 uh, uh, years. And on top of that, uh, uh, obviously also speak a lot uh, and engage uh, with clients. So let's cut to it then. How is the global economy doing? How do you see the economic growth outlook? And this question of recession, 
any specific regional differences, regions that are doing better or worse than we were expecting maybe previously in the year? Well, first of all, the global economy is set to weaken. If you look back, if you look at the rear mirror window um, uh, in the US, the US economy has been doing stellar. Uh, extremely strong uh, resilience, extremely strong labor markets, but that's looking uh, at the rear mirror window. If you look ahead, we do expect uh, a quite a sharp uh, economic slowdown, including the US, including Europe, and including for the global economy. If you look at our forecasts, we expect uh, advanced economies to be, to be the weakest since the 1980s outside of the global financial crisis and the COVID uh, uh, crisis that we had seen not so uh, long ago. That, that, that's number one. Number two, if you asked about divergence, yes, actually, uh, there is likely going to be quite a divergence in economic uh, growth. And uh, emerging Asia is likely to do much better than uh, advanced economies, as well as the global economy. If you look at our forecast, we do expect emerging Asia to be uh, growing at about 4% this year and next year, which is about four times higher next year than the growth that you can expect in the US and in Europe. So big divergence in growth and global growth is slowing down quite sharply next year. Is there a particular reason that the global forecast is so pessimistic? Well, I wouldn't say it's pessimistic. Uh, actually, growth slowing down is part of the solution of getting inflation under control. So I really do hope growth is going to sl uh, slow down, because if it's not going to slow down, then we have a bigger problem on the inflation front uh, than we expect uh, uh, right now. Reasons for the economic slowdown is uh, monetary policy transmission mechanism. Finally, um, probably the monetary policy rate hikes that we had seen, the rate hikes by the ECB, by the Fed, the sharpest since uh, uh, 40 years, they are likely to take uh, now effect. And on top of that, uh, uh, we also see pockets of vulnerabilities. If you think about uh, the real estate uh, downturn and weakening in, in China, but also if you look at uh, overgrowth rates and momentum over the last quarter, you already see uh, euro area which is uh, stagnating. Uh, and in the euro, so in the US, you see still strong uh, growth in terms of labor market. However, you also see manufacturing uh, sector um, slowing down quite, quite sharply. So there are pockets of vulnerabilities. And as higher interest rates will constrain uh, credit growth, economic growth is likely to come down further. So what about inflation then? At the start of this year, there were fears that it was going to spiral out of control. People who remembered the 1970s, um, which had the knock-on effect for, for individuals of the cost of living crisis. I mean, how, where do you see the first of those now, this idea of spiraling inflation that seems to have come under control, you're suggesting? Yes, I know. Um, if you look at uh, where we are heading direction-wise, yes, it's great. Headline inflation in the US, in Europe, is coming down quite sharply. In the US, uh, headline inflation is now below 4%. In the euro area, it's around 5%. 5% is much lower than the 10% euro inflation rate that we had seen last year. So direction-wise, it's great. However, if you, if you look at inflation developments over the last year uh, and two, and if you look at inflation developments in the 1970s, 
Maybe the biggest risk out there is complacency that we declare too early victory over inflation. Uh, supply side, on the supply side front, we had seen a lot of easing. The supply side, the whole global manufacturing process is working pretty well again. There are not so, there are not so many supply side bottlenecks anymore. However, on the demand front, you still have a lot of pressure. And this is why I, I really hope that, uh, and I'm pretty convinced that central banks around the globe, they will continue uh, to run a tight monetary policy for longer. Maybe not tighter, but there is a risk of tighter monetary policy, but at least they keep uh, policy rates higher for longer. And I think there are good reasons thereof, because inflation victory, um, we cannot declare it yet. It's too early to declare victory over inflation. There'll be political pressure, kind of public pressure maybe for central banks to ease on those rates. So you're saying that they mustn't do that and really they need to, if, if anything, certainly not decrease rates and probably possibly continue a bit increasing rates. Well, um, absolutely. First of all, absolutely not, right? Uh, if, 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 you, if you don't have price stability yet, uh, it would be way too early to decrease uh, interest rates and we are not at this stage. However, the question is, what will central banks do when growth weakens? And actually, our scenario of, uh, of pretty sharp uh, slowdown, uh, if it's not a recession, a slowdown will still hurt because uh, you see labor market uh, uh, weakening. Uh, in that environment, uh, uh, central bank shouldn't uh, uh, ease monetary policy if they don't see that uh, the inflation rate uh, has come down sustainably. And for that, it's, we should not just look at headline inflation rate, we should look at core uh, inflation uh, developments. And, uh, and there the signs are way too early to say that we are at this point yet where central banks could over the next quarter or two ease. I mean, what is the inflation rate that the Fed and the European Central Bank should be looking at? I mean, they used to always talk about around 2% inflation. And then that just seemed impossible at this time last year with inflation at Kind of going into double figures. Is that still kind of this sacrosanct figure, 2%? Well, you don't change, uh, you, you don't change the goalpost if you haven't reached the goal yet. That would be super dangerous. Uh, central banks' uh, uh, biggest resource and uh, biggest assets is their credibility. And uh, the credibility is at stake if they don't reach uh, price stability within a certain uh, reachable, within a certain reasonable uh, time frame. Uh, we all know, uh, with hindsight, it's easy. Uh, inflation wasn't uh, transitory like uh, many believed uh, in the central bank uh, arena and also obviously in, in the private sector uh, believed. And that's why it's really important to regain back uh, price stability. Without stable prices, there cannot be sustainable uh, growth. So 2% no, it's not sacrosanct, but it's sacrosanct now because uh, we are far off uh, from the 2% uh, inflation rate. Lower prices, it's, it's, it's the best ingredient uh, what the central bank can provide for growth to be sustainable. So I think we better get to the 2% um, inflation rate, have stability in prices, and then fine, we can have a discussion of what is, uh, what is the right uh, inflation level. There's nothing magic about uh, 2%. That's why you have central banks like the Swiss National Bank, my home country, 
the former employee of mine, they don't define price stability as a, as a uh, target of 2.0%. They define price stability, uh, prices positive above 0%, but below uh, 2%, and that over the medium term. And I think that is a good uh, definition. What are the other impacts of higher interest rates? You work for an insurance company. There might be some things that the average person doesn't realize. I mean, what is the impact for insurers? Interest rates, that they are not negative, first of all. This is really positive news. Interest rates, nominal interest rates in, in Switzerland, in Germany, especially in Europe, they have been negative for way too long. And negative rates are flat out negative. So that was, a, that was an area of financial repression where the government authorities um, directed, um, uh, directed uh, um, with, the, with the strategies, on the, especially also on the central bank front, to direct uh, uh, funds towards uh, funding uh, governments. So that's part of history. Now, for higher interest rates, and especially positive interest rates, for insurance companies, it's a real positive uh, driver. We calculate that uh, one percentage point increase in interest rates leads uh, to an incredible amount of additional loss-bearing capacity or claims-bearing capacity that an insurance uh, company uh, can take. For, for profitability, higher interest rate is incredibly positive. Let me give you one example. If you look at the US over the last uh, two years, you had seen an interest rate increase of government bonds of almost three percentage points. For the US um, insurance industry, that means that they can take on, on the balance sheets about 40 billion of additional losses, which is what the insurance industry in the US approximately uh, takes on just by natural catastrophe or climate change events per year. So the power of interest rates is incredibly uh, positive for the insurance industry, but I think also extremely positive uh, for the economy at large. So does that mean ever higher interest rates is good for the insurance sector? Or, um, I mean, where, where would an insurance company like to see them? Well, you, you have seen last year, right? I mean, last year we had seen an interest rate regime switch. Uh, we went out of the negative to extremely low interest rates environment to a positive environment on the interest rate front. And you saw the effect on financial markets. It wasn't a positive one. 2022 was one of the worst financial markets environment with all correlation of uh, fixed income assets and equities uh, um, the correlations not being the one that historically uh, you would have seen. Both fixed income as well as equities were under extreme uh, pressure. So I, I'm saying that because it's not just a question of the level. Yes, the level are now in positive territory and what we are, were used to uh, pre-global financial crisis, but it's also a question of, uh, of stability and volatility on the interest rate front. So it's good, hopefully, now to have some, some stability on the interest rate front, just from a changes perspective, uh, so that people and corporations and our clients and households uh, can also plan. If you have too much volatility on the way up or on the way down, that's not good for business and that's not good for growth. Sticking with the short term and the present, you mentioned the regional differences in, in economic growth and that there are emerging Asia, you said, is doing so much better 
can can you give us any more details of you know where where the 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 high growth is coming and why because people have talked about china not recovering from covid um as quickly as people had forecast Uh, true, and uh, it's not our expectation either uh, that uh, China is going to grow much stronger than uh, what we were used to pre-COVID-19. However, it's also a question of, uh, um, if you look at uh, China, a growth rate, and we are forecasting 4.8% uh, real GDP growth in China, it's still extremely strong. It's not the 5, 6, 7 percentage uh, growth rates we were used to uh, pre-crisis. But if you look at uh, emerging Asia, if you think about uh, Asia, um, especially the emerging markets aside, uh, not Japan, excluding uh, Japan, they don't have had the inflation problem that we had in advanced economies. They didn't have the stimulus, which were also partly um, driving the inflation problem we have uh, today. So they are in a much, much better starting uh, position, while also having had naturally a higher uh, real GDP uh, growth rate. And, and that really helps. They don't have to, to increase uh, monetary policy to the same extent, like the ECB, like the Bank uh, of England, or like the Fed. And that, that's, a, that's an important reason why uh, they are growing uh, stronger. It's not the only reason, but it's an important reason why you see that big difference uh, difference of, of, of four, right, in terms of growth rate between emerging Asia uh, growing around 4% this and next year, and the US and the euro area uh, below 1% for the US, that's our expectation next year, and way below 1% to almost uh, stagnation for the euro area as a whole. So let's look at the medium and long term then. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any big changes you're seeing in the next 12 months and then beyond? Um, a couple of things spring to my mind. Um, this idea of deglobalization to some extent or the reorganization of supply chains, which also would, you know, would impact Asia and also big technological shifts. Is it too early to, to say what the impact of this kind of the AI revolution is going to have? I mean, what are the things you're looking at in the medium and long term? Mm-hmm. We're looking at uh, globalization, supply chain changes. We're looking at uh, climate change, climate change still the number one long-term economic uh, risk. And yes, we are looking at uh, uh, the effect of technology on on the economies and uh, how they develop. Climate change, uh, it's um, the transition. Uh, It's really important that we get uh, that right. But if you look at uh, climate change, if you look at uh, supply chain reconfiguration, um, all these factors, um, AI less, digitalization less, but the big structural factors they are, again, they are uh, more inflationary rather than uh, deflationary. It's more expensive, right, to get to have two or three or four uh, supply uh, chains. It's much more expensive in terms of production process to do uh, just in case rather than just in time uh, supply chain uh, management, what we were used to. And on the climate change front, uh, the transition means more investments and also the weather-related effects. If you think about El Nino uh, this year, the weather-related effects it can have, and it has, quite a strong economic effect and also an economic effect on prices. So that's something we are very much uh, uh, and closely looking at. AI, I think AI has the potential 
and technology has a potential uh, also to, um, to move productivity up. And it could be very positive for the supply side of the economy, uh, but it's too early to say. On top of that, um, what's also important, I think, to look at, and it's driving globalization, is, is the politicization of, uh, of the economy and maybe the reindustrialization of national economies. It's a trend uh, that we have been seeing now for, for quite some time and this incentivizing coming out of uh, post-COVID. Do you think that trend is here to stay? Or could it, could it be a transitory thing? And when companies and governments realize the costs involved of, of kind of more nationalistic industrial policy, that maybe they'll gradually drift back to um, the status quo before? No, I think it's, a, it's, it's here to stay. It's rare, right? If you look over uh, economic history over the last 100, 200 years, when the government steps in, and the role of the government becomes bigger. It's, it's very rare that actually they retreat uh, back. Um, the government needed to step in for, for the COVID-19 crisis, no question uh, about that. Uh, but um, uh, they are stepping in, in with, with the politicization of markets and with deglobalization that we are seeing. They are stepping in to such an extent which we have rarely seen I would say post-World War II uh, period. I would say three points in terms of the trend. Number one, globalization has peaked. Deglobalization is happening, but you don't see it yet in the numbers. Number two, deglobalization likely to happen more in terms of services, I think financial services in particular, less so probably in, in, in trade. And number three, looking ahead, yes, I do believe it's uh, structural and this uh, multi-year, uh, if not uh, multi-decade uh, process ahead of us. And all in all, in terms of the economic effects, uh, that's another driver why we should be careful in declaring uh, inflation, um, inflation pressure um, to be, inflation victory uh, to, be, to be here. It will take time for, in order for inflation pressure to come down and the supply chain reconfiguration adds to the inflation pressure. What about other emerging economic powers uh, in the medium and long term, India and Africa. India seems to be forging ahead. India is super interesting. And you have seen uh, the G20 meetings uh, recently. And in the G20 meetings, I found it really interesting, the announcement uh, of, uh, of new infrastructure investments uh, by India, by your area and by the US. You see that we are not living in a um, in a bipolar uh, political world, we are living in a multipolar uh, world. And it's good to see more investment in infrastructure, and it's good to see uh, what we have been seeing out of the, the G20 meeting, even though it, it shows that there are, um, fr there are fractions and uh, there are tensions, global uh, political tensions, no question about that. We've got a couple of minutes left. What are there things you think we should be looking at kind of in the last few minutes? We discussed it at the beginning, higher interest rates, are they here to stay? Yes, they are here to stay. And what does it mean for the economy? I think it's really positive to see higher interest rates. Why? Number one, finally, there is again a return of capital being invested. Number two, you need higher interest rates for the allocation of risk. It's all about pricing risk. 
And I think here about financial markets, but also uh, the real economy. And number three, having positive interest rate, it's good for the savings industry, it's good for households, it's good for, for pensions, it's good for insurance companies. So that's, that's a real, real positive. Let me maybe touch one more uh, point on, on uh, the power of interest rates for insurance companies. Yes, higher interest rates makes the business, new business, more profitable. This is good for shareholders, no question about that. But it's also good for the wider economy because it means insurance companies, they can also provide more protection. Protection in terms of uh, uh, additional insurance um, to, to risk like mortality, like health, or also uh, NATCAT, which is very much at, at the forefront. And I think, uh, Robin, we live in a world of high risk, higher uncertainty, Yes, global growth is, is coming down and, uh, and it's good at least uh, that that part of dysfunction that we had over the last 15 years, negative rates, is something of the past and I don't think we're going to revisit it anytime soon. Jerome Hegeli is Chief Economist at Swiss Re. You can find the Chief Economist's outlook and more analysis of its findings on the World Economic Forum's website. And you can follow the action live or on catch-up from the Sustainable Development Impact Meetings at wef.ch slash SDIM23 and across social media using the hashtag SDIM23. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week with more insights about the world's biggest challenges and how we can tackle them. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.